0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone. My name is Lara Bazelon, and I'm thrilled to be here today at the Commonwealth Club virtually with Dr. Steven Pinker to discuss his new and exciting book, Rationality, What It Is, Why It Seems Scarce, Why It Matters. So thank you, Steve, for joining us.
1: Lara, thank you for, the, for agreeing to the conversation.
0: I'm excited. Okay, so we're going to start basic. And please don't take this as a stupid question, because I think it's actually harder than it sounds. What is rationality?
1: That's the hardest question of all, and uh, I-, I believe there are no stupid questions, and certainly that one is not not one. Uh, I struggle that with that, of course. I- at the beginning of the book, and the dictionary was of little help because it tends to to define rationality in terms of reason and reason in terms of rationality, and they both come from the same Latin root, so that that doesn't get us anywhere. I define it as the use of knowledge to uh, attain a goal, where knowledge, I borrow the standards philosopher's definition as justified true belief. Uh, and the reason that I define it as a pursuit of a goal is that uh, you can be you can rationally pursue a dubious goal like power or or for that matter destruction or violence, but you could take steps that that uh, uh, get you there. And without a goal, just the ability to say true things doesn't really uh, satisfy our conception of rationality. If you imagine some robot or for that matter some uh, some person who just spun out the logical implications of a statement, such as if uh, pigs can fly, then um, Paris is the capital of Germany. Uh, that is a logically true statement, but it is not particularly rational to uh, just mouth true statements, true but useless statements like that. Our intuitive conception of rationality is it's it's a, it's a way to get something. Not necessarily something um, <clears throat> material or practical. It could be that the goal that you're trying to attain is uh, understanding, insight, um, uh, actionable knowledge. But uh, it has uh, I think to satisfy our conception of rationality, it's got to be towards something for something.
0: Okay. So I want to jump forward to my favorite chapter, chapter 10. And as you say, it's the chapter that your readers have been waiting for. It's called, What's Wrong With People?, And this is where you talk about the fact that rationality is something that we've been moving towards as a society. You talk about reasons why we become more rational. And yet, and so the and yet is that at this point in our history, tens of millions of, let's just stick to the United States, Americans believe lies. And I'm not saying sort of white lies or frivolous lies. They believe ludicrous damaging, empirically false lies. So let's just take two of them. Tens of millions of people believe that Donald Trump won the election due to massive election fraud. And tens of millions of people refuse to get vaccinated because they believe, I don't know, you can take your pick. If they take the vaccine, their testicles will shrink. If they take the vaccine, their testicles will grow very large. They will become impotent. Bill Gates can implant a chip inside their head. For whatever reason, due to all of this False belief and lies. A significant part of our population won't acknowledge our true president is Joe Biden, and won't get inoculated against a deadly disease. So my question to you is, how is rationality as a way of thinking and seeing the world so powerless against this kind of thing, which you rightly I think call madness?
1: Yeah, it is madness. But the um, the reason I'm glad that you. Uh, opened up our conversation by asking me to define rationality is that that uh, uh, since rationality always is in pursuit of a goal sometime and the the paradox is uh, how does a species that by, by some criteria has a claim to rationality believe all of this nonsense and part of the answer is uh, people may be using rational means to pursue a um, a dubious end in this case, <clears throat> solidarity within your group. Prestige within your group, uh, the desire to whip up uh, outrage against other groups and moral uh, certitude within your own. So, the uh, part of the uh, my side bias, perhaps the most pervasive and powerful of the cognitive biases, namely, we all tend to believe the sacred values of our coalition, our political party, our religion. in terms of the higher-order goal of you know, true statements, uh, the, it may be irrational to uh, profess these beliefs. But uh, if you are deep in Trump country, uh, the probably if you say that Biden, at least in many circles, that Biden legitimately won the election, uh, you could become a non-person within that social clique. So from the point of view of the goal of respect of your uh, your peers, it may be perfectly rational to say, say that the election was stolen. Uh, the problem is it's not rational for all of us if every clique uh, rewards those who profess its sacred beliefs, which are, uh, objectively speaking, false beliefs.
0: Okay, I think this leads perfectly into the next question I want to ask you, because I want to be fair about this and say, too, that there's plenty of irrationality on the left side of the spectrum. And I think you've been one of the few brave kind of, quote-unquote, mainstream thinkers who's been able to say the quiet part out loud, which is that this isn't something that we can just leave to a certain segment of the very far-right segment of the population. So you say, for example, and of course, as an academic, this resounded with me, that universities have become, in some ways, impediments to the very thing that they're supposed to be teaching, which is to have their students think rationally. And you talk about the fact that unpopular speakers are drowned out or chased away, that people get fired, for example, for expressing unpopular views, and that this is happening on the left and on the right. And so I guess I want you to sort of explain to us why you think a place that's supposed to be a bastion of free speech an exchange of ideas and robust debate is actually closing itself off to those things. And rather than teaching students to be rational, sort of inculcating perhaps the reverse of that.
1: Yeah, it's uh, there is a, a widespread drive or motive to uh, be on the side of a dominant moral coalition and to condemn a, um, uh, a minority co- coalition that is uh, point to those guys and say they are evildoers, unlike us, we all wear halos. Uh, you don't want to find yourself on the wrong side of that divide, and so there can be a bandwagon or, or mobbing effect as people are terrified that they might be in the crosshairs of the, uh, the, the, the moralizers. Uh, <clears throat> the fact within the academy, often the basis of the, this moral condemnation. Uh, comes from causes that are obviously inherently worthy, such as opposition to racism and, and sexism and, and uh, homophobia and so on. The, uh, when we do have these legitimate moral uh, goals, they can be used as weapons to demonize a, um, a, a minority coalition. I think partly from the dynamics of Condemn lest you be condemned. They're kind of like in the playground. uh, If there's a group of kids that are starting to um, bully um, some wimpy kid, you're torn between sympathy for the wimpy kid and the terror of uh, being bullied uh, together with him uh, or her. Uh, so there is a, that kind of social dynamics of moralistic uh, competition. It's aided by a num- number of other factors. <clears throat> One of them is that there is a cadre of um, bureaucrats and administrators in the university whose own incentives are not aligned with the greater mission of the university, that, that being to uh, create and transmit knowledge. Um, you know Whether the university does that or not is kind of irrelevant to their professional status, their... They are there to enforce certain rules. Some of them are given mandates that crucially depend on rooting out various kinds of malfeasance, ever more subtle forms of um, uh, homophobia and transphobia and, and racism. If, uh, if the university ever became um, uh, <clears throat> unbigoted, unprejudiced, they would be – they'd lose their jobs um, and the f- fiduciary duty of justifying the special status of the university in terms of its role of uh, 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 discovering and transmitting knowledge isn't aligned with the uh, professional incentives of a lot of people in the university. Not even in some ways the, the one who has the ultimate power, the the president, the provost, the dean. There's no one who's – or not enough people who are saying – hallelujah, you are repaying our trust in universities by making them at the forefront of, of uh, discovering new knowledge. I mean, sometimes that happens, but very often it's how much money do you raise? Uh, do you get the uh, keep uh, unfavorable publicity away from the university? So there are these, these uh, incentives that are not aligned with what, what I think you and I would agree to be the central um, mission or telos of the university.
0: I want to stay on this topic for a minute and and press you a bit and ask this question which is there's very very few academics that occupy the position that you do which is this stratosphere where you're a public intellectual you're the author of best selling books you have a platform and a voice that most academics do not have and never will and because of that I guess what I want to know is do you feel an added or special responsibility to push back against the kinds of things that you're talking about, not only within your own institution, but then when you see them within other institutions, because you have the scaffolding to withstand the kind of blowback that most people don't?
1: Well, in, indeed, um, that uh, you know, I, I have the I, I tell you I have the ultimate privilege. It's not not particularly be, you know being being white or or male or you know maybe those are privileges. But tenure, oh my god, uh, how many occupations in the entire world have anything like like uh, tenure? The purpose of tenure is to insulate um, teachers and public figures against uh, punishment for uh, unfavorable. Uh, 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 controversial, unfavorable beliefs. The reason that 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 privilege exists is that we know, looking back, that a lot of moral and social progress came from beliefs that in their time were considered uh, heretical, uh, punishable, gay marriage being a recent example. Uh, And therefore, there is a legitimate social niche for people whose who Whose job it is to try to create and transmit knowledge but and and who are have some buffer against um, uh, losing their uh, their livelihood or otherwise being punished for saying things that are unpopular so I do think that is a responsibility but it's it's one that I don't um, wield uh, <coughs> thoughtlessly It's not that every thought that crosses my mind I immediately tweet uh, because you know a lot of thoughts that cross our minds we don't have the time or the inclination to defend properly. I, I choose some uh, issues that where I, I think that I've thought a lot about them. If challenged, I could respond to the challenges, and those are the ones that I, that I uh, push. Mindful of the fact that uh, there's a, a massive number of, uh, uh, of, of adjunct professors and postdoctoral fellows and grad students and undergraduates, not to mention journalists and, uh, and, and bloggers, who are far more vulnerable
0: So this is sort of maybe one of the last questions I have on this particular topic. But one thing that you wrote that really interested me about this whole debate and this idea that we're in teams, right? Because essentially we think about the left and the right, the blue and the red, Republicans and Democrats, but you make a more subtle point in your book, which is that that split isn't as neat as it used to be. And when you, what you said is, historically, when we think about those two teams, we think about customary fault lines of religion, race, and class. I'm quoting you. And now you say... That's not as true because there's some strange Venn diagram overlap that perhaps neither side will admit to. And so there's this weird noise and inconsistency within your own team sometimes and your own personal beliefs. And yet the other team is just simply completely unacceptable. So what you're talking about with these two teams is that they are socio-cultural tribes rather than coherent ideologies. Again, I'm quoting you. Can you unpack that and explain what you mean?
1: yes sure a uh, uh, long standing and deep problem is you know, what 's the deal what is it, What makes the right, the right what makes the left the left? Why are clusters of issues that at least at first glance wouldn 't seem to have a whole lot to do with each other, why do they tend to intercorrelate among their believers so for example, if someone uh, is um, uh, in favor of strict constructionism to, to take an example from from, uh, from from your world or originalism. It's you know a, re- a reasonable bet that they also favor a strong military and tough on crime uh, policies and a restricted social safety net. Uh, those who believe more in a living constitution, uh, living and changing, uh, probably are I believe in a smaller military. Uh, they're more likely to be pr- perhaps um, pro-choice than pro-life. So the, the question is, why do these cohere? It's not what's is there, is there a common denominator? In, in my book, The Blank Slate, I try to, uh, to, to kind of dig out the, the common denominators in terms of different conceptions of human nature. And I, I can't claim originality. I was influenced by Thomas Sowell and, and other uh, historians of ideas before him that, um, that there is in the traditional right a kind of um, acknowledgement of uh, the dark side of human nature. As a, a permanent part of the human condition, and the need for norms and institutions to constrain it to, to allow us to get along, whether it's strong military and police to deter the wrongdoing that you just expect to be a constant temptation, um, black lines in law because you can't trust judges uh, to, to exercise um, uh, wisdom, they're being only human. Whereas on the right, again, these are these are both somewhat caricatures, but on the left, I'm sorry, uh, there is more of a belief in a, uh, a utopian vision that human nature um, is is actually socially constructed. There is no constant human nature where blank slates, the right enculturation and teaching and parenting practices could breed a gener- new generation that is not saddled with all these flaws. And so we can have as much Uh, cooperation and uh, equality as we we strive for, a more utopian vision. Again, this is, of course, if you're reducing all these political uh, differences to one continuum, it's bound to be simplified. But that is is one that I think, as we say in social science, accounts for a lot of the variance. But um, superimposed on that that distinction, and I I think that does account for a lot of the variance, there is sheer tribalism. What, uh, for perhaps historical contingent reasons, just becomes an identity badge of one side or another. And we see this happening. I mean, it's it's obvious when it comes to political parties, uh, at least more so in past decades than now, the American political parties have become much more ideologically homogeneous. We have a a left-wing party and a right-wing party. That wasn't true in the 60s when the Democrats had uh, Southern segregationists like George Wallace. I like to point out that the Democratic Party in 1972 is the party of the two Georges, George McGovern and George Wallace. They both competed for the uh, Democratic presidential nomination. There used to be this this thing called liberal Republicans. I think we have the last one of them in in, in Massachusetts, our, our governor. Uh, that, so, so, the political parties everyone realized are coalitions of convenience, geographical uh, demographic, and so on, but even the left right distinction, putting aside the those institutions called parties, um, I, 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 we, we have seen in the last few years with like mind boggling reversals like sympathy for Russia. Is it you know yay Russia or boo Russia? Well, it used to be that the left was kind of a little bit soft on Russia, and the right were the you know the the, the hawks. Uh, then it kind of flipped on a dime. Likewise for immigration, and then there's some uh, going back a little further. There are other um, issues that surprisingly could have gone did go the other way. Environmentalism was originally a more Republican kind of country club members wanting to preserve their pretty views of the landscape and habitats for duck hunting. Uh, And the, the left in the 60s thought environmentalism was frivolous because it distracted people from the real issues, namely the war in Vietnam and racism and inequality. Now, of course, environmentalism then uh, became uh, appropriated by the left. But it just shows that some issues uh, can change, perhaps because of just raw coalitional politics, perhaps because they are reframed in different ways, so they resonate with the different uh, deep into intellectual foundations.
0: So you had mentioned your book, The Blank Slate, which is a good segue for me to kind of back up and talk about sort of your broader work with this entry point. So on Friday, you were on Real Time with Bill Maher, and I encourage anybody who hasn't seen the show to watch or, as I do, listen. And what Bill Maher said to you was, quote, you have this reputation as a guy who is a little too happy. And I think what he was talking about is your last two books, The Better Angels of Our Nature and the Enlightenment. And where you argue, essentially, that over the past 300 years, we've really seen a triumph of rational thinking, and that for most people on the planet, life is significantly improved. You make the point, for example, that we went from 90% of the world population living in poverty to 9% and being on a track to essentially eliminate it, that there's less violence, there's less early death, there's less disease and suffering, and more rights afforded to more people. So I guess what I'm saying kind of channeling Bill Maher is that what do you say to people who argue that your books and the enormous amount of influence that your books have has on, say, people like Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg, that that essentially it allows people like that to feel complacent and self-congratulatory in a time where we all should be feeling a real sense of political and social and, and medical peril.
1: Yeah, a few things. Uh, One of those, I I, I do have bona fides as having a rather dark view of human nature. So I'm not, uh, I'm certainly don't have a uh, Panglossian or Pollyannish view of our own species. And the blank slate was uh, a uh, a pretty uh, extended defense of the idea that that, that human nature has some uh, ugly parts that we are probably permanently saddled with. Uh, And in fact, the Those two books, The Better Angels of Our Nature and then Enlightenment Now, kind of grew out of uh, what I hope was kind of a loophole in the uh, traditional conception of human nature, which tended to be more conservative than than, uh, progressive, that, uh, well, you can't change human nature, war is in our genes, so it's naive to try to reduce war. I pushed back against that, both theoretically and empirically. Theoretically, uh, I believe that human nature is... A, a complex system. There are lots of parts. Uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln's metaphor of better angels is a poetic way to capture it. Namely, there are better angels. There are also, let's call them, inner demons. Just, there's, there's more than one part to it. And that even if we do have some rather you know, na- nasty urges, dominance and, and revenge, we uh, have ca- capability of, for, for sadism, uh, for callousness, turning off em- empathy is something that we can easily turn off. Um, that, that's all pretty unfortunate, but fortunately, it's not the only thing in the skull. We also have self-control. We can, we can inhibit our impulses. We, have, we do have a sense of empathy. Granted, it, it's got a, a dial. It can be ramped up or, or down. We have um, cognition, uh, ability to solve problems and to pool our solutions using language. So uh, whether what happens in a given society depends on how these different parts of human nature play out against each other. And I noted in Better Angels, and this this was the seed that grew into, sorry, in in the blank slate, this was the seed that grew into Better Angels. What I was saying is don't, even though traditionally human nature was a kind of conservative doctrine, it doesn't have to be. Uh, And indeed, it's kind of uh, pointless to argue whether social change is possible, for that, you just got to look to see whether it's happened. And indeed it has happened. You know, slavery was abolished and the Soviet empire fell and, uh, um, uh, rates of personal crime had gone down over the course of history. So it was data like that, that, um, quantify changes in history in a progressive direction, assuming that you, we all agree that, that, uh, violence ought to be reduced, which by the way, itself is not uncontroversial. For a lot of human history, people thought war was, um, it was wonderful. It was spiritual and holy and uh, heroic. Uh, but uh, assuming we think that war is bad, uh, war has gone down, and a lot of people don't know it. A lot of people, if you ask them, do you think poverty has increased or decreased worldwide? Do you think that, that uh, crime has increased or decreased? They just give you the wrong answer. And so when I present those graphs that show... Um, war and crime uh, going down, it's not you know, optimism. It's not happiness. It's not seeing as the glass is half full. It's trying to present data that most people uh, never uh, have access to. If you get your view of the world from the news, the news being a highly non-random sample of the worst things that happen on a given day, you'll have actually a, a, a picture of the human condition that is just factually incorrect because that's what the news will do, not showing trends, not showing uh, data, and data is kind of a corrective. Now, it doesn't mean that everything gets better all the time. That would be a, a miracle, and <laughs> that's certainly not the way the way history works. And far from encouraging complacency, I tend to think that it does the opposite. It certainly has with me. I, I do feel that I've been more engaged, more of an activist in a number of causes after seeing these data, because if you really think that nothing has changed. Uh, despite all the efforts of people to make the world a better place, things are as bad as they always were, or maybe even worse. The, the right response is well, you know, why bother? Let's just, um, it, it's, it's do goodism, it's, it's utopian, it's romantic to try to improve things. Uh, on the contrary, if actual, say, particulate matter in the air has gone down thanks to the Clean Air Act, if poverty has gone down thanks to the earned income tax credit. If measures of uh, improvement have actually worked, you know, kind of, not they haven't eliminated any of these ills, but they have reduced them, that's all the more reason that we should use government and law and policy and, and, uh, and ideas to try to make, make things better still. I mean, Bill Gates is an appropriate example because he's the least complacent person on the planet. I mean, he's trying to reduce deaths from disease and and malnutrition and hunger. Uh, His latest book was How to Solve the the Climate Crisis. You know, Zuckerberg's a a different story, but that'll be a whole other uh, conversation.
0: Oh, good. We can have you back and we can talk all about that. No, and I think you make some really interesting points, particularly about what the media covers. I mean, how I think about it is they don't cover every single plane that lands safely, which is the vast majority. They cover the plane crash. And that's kind of an analogy just generally for it bleeds, it leads. And so what people are exposed to overwhelmingly is tsunami of bad news. And I think you make the point that there could be a headline that says 137,000 people escaped poverty every day for years, but nobody ever writes that headline because it's kind of, this gradual thing, and also because it's just not going to get as many clicks and eyeballs as the proverbial or actual plane crash, right?
1: Uh, Indeed. Uh, And and I I got that uh, way of putting it from Max Roser, who's the proprietor of Our World in Data, the uh, highly addictive website that plots trends on anything you could conceive of uh, and and amounts. And is the go-to source, by the way, for uh, information on on COVID, uh, although it antedates the COVID pandemic by many years. But just the data uh, centric approach to the world, I think, uh, is a much better way to understand things. And you know, when it comes to journalism, people often the, the, the response I get is, "Well, journalists have no choice; they've got to chase you know ad dollars and clicks and eyeballs, and uh, you know, if it, ble- it, it, it violence sells." And of course, violence does sell. We we pay for fictitious violence in our entertainment, uh, so it's maybe not surprising that we consume fict- uh, real violence in, in our newsfeed. But I, I think we shouldn't. S- uh, underestimate people's interest in data and trends, and newspapers are a fine example. Look at the sports page, day after day, it's like uh, you know s- splattered with data, with tables uh, consumed avidly. The business page, the, the the weather section. So it's not that people are phobic of data, it, but and it is an approach that I would like to see more woven into day to day journalism. If there is a an event there should be an accompanying statistic on how common, how rare it is. It, has it been increasing? Has it been decreasing? If there's a risk, how likely is it to kill you compared to other risks that you happily assume? Just to make the, to, to, to uh, fold journalism into, into uh, probability data statistics uh, uh, more intimately.
0: Well, that's interesting because you do a really good job in your book of dealing with math which is scary and off putting to many people i'll just speak for myself and the way that you do it is you interweave it into the points that you're making and you have charts but you also instead of using numbers you often use letters which i thought was an interesting way to kind of get at math and then you also get at it through examples that involve actual people and interesting stories or maybe they're made up people but i think it's your way of trying to engage the reader in In math, which many people do not want to engage in. And what I hear you saying is essentially, yes, and newspapers and you know media should be doing, should be doing the same thing. And I guess sort of relatedly, I think the other reason why maybe it works well is because you leaven it with a fair amount of humor, and which I as someone who is very, very literally and culturally Jewish appreciate, much of it is this hilarious. (laughs) Yiddish humor, which I won't spoil, but I think it's this kind of interweaving of the math and the humor and the personal story that actually allows you to make all of those different points, right?
1: Yes, it's something that I, I, I work very hard to do, both in my writing and, for that matter, in my teaching, um, that uh, th- there is um, – there also – Together with the mathophobia that is widespread, I think I forget who said that every equation in a book cuts its readership by half, Um, but uh, and I I think I have only one in the in the the entire book, Uh, but uh, people can consume. It also depends on how the numbers are presented. And one major point in the book um, is that a lot of us seem to be real doofuses when it comes to probability, but particularly when the probability is stated as a decimal fraction applied to a single case. So what are the, what are the chances that I have you know, prostate cancer? What, what's the probability? Well, it's kind of a weird question. I mean, I thought I do have it or I don't have it. What do you mean the probability that I, you know, what's the, what's the probability that I was born in September? Uh, the probability there is a, a deeply weird concept. In that context, it can only refer to degree, relative degree of ignorance. Uh, but when you change the terms of some of these classic problems that people famously fail, made famous, some of them by the, the work of Daniel Kahneman in Thinking Fast and Slow, And the kind of gotcha problems but a lot of them when you reframe them in terms of frequencies of imaginable uh, people or 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 things it uh, becomes more intuitive the classic example is medical diagnosis if you say the prevalence of a disease in a population is uh, 0.01 the uh, sensitivity of a test is 0.9 the false positive rate is 0.09 you test positive what are the chances that you what's the probability that you have the disease uh, a majority of people, including a majority of doctors, get it wrong, like way wrong. They say 90%. The answer is 9%. Uh, you might, just a, a side note, what, how could it possibly be nine percent Well, if the, the reason is if the prevalence is low to begin with, you know, uh, 1%, if there is a um, appreciable false alarm rate, then most of the positives are going to be false positives. Uh, and, and um, that's something that's not so easy to dig out when the problem is presented in terms of uh, decimal fractions applied to single cases. But if you reframe it, you take the same data and you say, uh, imagine 1,000 people. Well, 10 of them have the disease. Of those um, uh, uh, 10 that have the disease, 9 of them will test positive. Of the 990 that don't have the disease, well, um Uh, uh, I think something on the range of 89 will test positive. A a person tests positive. um, uh, Of the people who test positive, how many have the disease? Well, uh, that is much, much easier to follow. And now a majority of people get it right. So there are numbers in both cases. It's not just a question of mathophobia, but it is a question of thinking of the way in which those numbers are presented and thinking about the way the human mind works and assigning a decimal fraction to a probability of a single case is a recent and somewhat weird um, construct, concept. But we all encounter things through our lives. We mentally keep track of how many of them go one way, how many of them go another way. That's a a kind of intuitive math that all of us do master. And with a bit of cleverness in how you present numbers to people, you can get them to grasp things that otherwise might seem uh, very unintuitive.
0: I want to turn now to my favorite topic, which, as you pointed out, is law. And you talk a little bit, and I think actually very, very trenchantly, about some issues in the criminal justice system. You have this chapter called Hits and false alarms. And it's basically about, as I understand it, signal detection. And you spend some time talking about how that plays out in the courtroom. And you explain that even though we hand it to judges and juries to make decisions, they're imperfect decision makers, in part because of the quality of the evidence that they get and the false assurances that that evidence is reliable, which makes me want to bring you in as a guest speaker to my wrongful conviction seminar where we talk about just how terrible some of this evidence is. But you talk about how there's a segment of criminal justice advocates who basically say, look, we want to tamp down, we want you to ignore fact finder, we want you to ignore the noise, which I interpret as sort of competing explanations for a piece of evidence or or a creeping doubt. And you write that people who are anti-noise, so to speak, basically say, This is quote, believe the woman, monitor the terrorists, and lock them up before they attack. If someone takes a life, they deserve to lose their own. These arguments, you say, they could be restated as put more innocent people in prison, accuse more blameless men of sexual assault, lock up harmless youth who shoot their mouths off on social media, execute more of the guiltless. And then you say that you're not arguing necessarily for greater rationality to refute those arguments, to refute those advocates. And I guess my question to you is, why not? Shouldn't we be pushing back and arguing for more noise and less signal, for example, in the criminal justice system?
1: Well, yes, I think. Right. Uh, I think you mean more signal, less noise. Uh, Sorry. Yes. But, but I, I knew I knew I knew what you were. But I, I understood your point. Uh, absolutely. So and, and that the point of that chapter, uh, as it applies to law, because it applies to lots of things, including. um do I have COVID, including should we impose lockdowns to deal with COVID, any kind of risky decision uh, to, to make? The, the point of that chapter is really to try to equip people just with the conceptual tools to distinguish two different factors when it comes to making a risky decision. A decision where you're not omniscient, you're not infallible, which is kind of all decisions. Uh, and that is uh, the um, Given that any bit of evidence, any medical test, any any indicator of the world is not infallible, some of the time it'll be a false alarm. Sometimes it'll miss something that's really out there. We're mortal humans. We're not God. We have to set a cutoff. If the evidence is strong enough, we say, uh, yes, he has the disease. Yes, he's convicted. Uh, If it falls on the other side, we say no, realizing that inevitably there will be There have to be errors on both sides. There have to be, uh, say, in in the criminal uh, um, courtroom context, there'll be guilty people who walk. There'll be innocent people who are convicted. You uh, mathematically can't reduce them to zero if you are uh, not a god. Uh, Now, that means there are two, kind of two knobs, two two sliders, two kinds of decisions to make in any situation like that. One of them is... um, Uh, how trigger-happy should we be or or gun-shy? Should we be like a a hanging judge or should we be a bleeding heart? Should we err on the side of um, convicting a few innocents just so that we don't miss any of the guilty or the other way around? And and I'm sure you teach your students about, um, is it Blackstone's ratio? Better 10 10, uh, guilty people go free than one innocent be convicted. Uh, So that's a decision, and it's partly a moral decision you know, there's no kind of correct answer. And Blackstone came up with his number, who knows how it kind of intuitively seems about right. There's, it does seem to be something uniquely heinous about convicting uh, the the, uh, innocent, but it is a moral decision. On top of that, there is how good is your evidence? How good are the forensics? Uh, How good is your, how sensitive is your medical test in the sense of minimizing the number of, false positives and false negatives and people do tend don't distinguish them and in the courtroom context and I, I think this is what what you were pushing toward and which I heartily agree you know a, a, a huge amount of our effort should be in the getting the best possible evidence because that even though it doesn't absolve us of this agonizing trade-off it makes it much much less severe the better your evidence the fewer guilty people will go free, free, the fewer innocent people will be convicted. But just don't confuse them. If all you're saying is, put bad guys behind bars, uh, uh, kill people who take a life. If that's all you do, and you don't look at the evidence, then inevitably, by mathematical necessity, you're going to be committing some uh, miscarriages of, of uh, more miscarriages of justice.
0: That makes sense. Um, so the audience questions are coming in. So I want to make sure that I do what I promised and ask them. So one question to you is <clears throat> what are the strongest predictors for people being rational as opposed to irrational or prone to being tribal
1: yes um, well the, the the tribal is a little kicker to the question because the one of the biases and and cognitive psychologists have a long list you can go to Wikipedia and I think it's, it's up to two hundred different fallacies and biases the the my side bias what you could might call the tribalism bias is one of the uh, biases that actually cuts across sheer intelligence. Uh, smart people can be as tribal as less smart people. Um, when it comes to the uh, many of the other biases, let's say the gambler's fallacy. If a roulette wheel lands red ten times in a row, is it more likely to fall uh, black? The answer is no. Every spin of the wheel is independent. If you think, okay, it's due for a black, that's the gambler's fallacy. So the question is, and that's just you know what one of many. Uh, who falls prey to it on average smarter people are less likely to make those blunders but only on average the correlation is uh nowhere near 1.0 so there are smart people who are suckers for fallacies and less smart people who who catch on to them so in addition to intelligence what are the other predictors well there is a a factor it's almost it may even be closer to personality than sheer intelligence sometimes called active open-mindedness that is, do you just have the general mindset or philosophy of being open to persuasion, to evidence? Uh, there's the, the, the uh, quote falsely attributed to John Maynard Keynes, when the facts change, I change my mind, sir, what do you do? Uh, he didn't say it, but it's a good quote. Uh, do you endorse that? Now, a lot of people don't, by the way. They consider it to be a sign of moral weakness to change their mind. Uh, remember John Kerry in 2004 was accused of being a flip-flopper. Uh, there are people who, who consider a, a, a kind of integrity of courage to stick with their opinions, no matter what the evidence is. Now, that kind of mindset, and and, and so, so that, um, the openness to uh, active open-mindedness, you subscribe to the magazines that have the opposite politics. So if you're on the left, take a peek at the Wall Street Journal or on the right, take a peek at the uh at, you know mother jones uh, or the the new york times that's set of attitudes makes you more rational also uh, a, there's a, a measure that's probably closer to self self control that is if you go with your first gut impulse, then um, that in general correlates with a lot of other irrational uh choices, including uh, flubbing some uh, kind of uh, gotcha questions. Uh, so reflectiveness, pausing, thinking things through before you give your answer also helps.
0: I want to stay on that for one second because I'm intrigued by something. This is something that my students and I've been over and over in, in this wrongful commissions class, which is, and I want to ask this to you personally, how much should, should we trust our, our gut instinct? How much do you personally trust yours in decision-making?
1: You know, I try not to. It's it's uh, the, we we call it a, a gut feeling because it does feel overwhelming from the inside, but um, but it, it is probably a source of, of folly and error uh, more often than not. Some cases it's all you have, uh, and for some cases like perceptual classifications, like do you recognize uh, a face, do you recognize a song, the, uh, the the gut is all we have to go on. It probably consists neurobiologically of the accumulation of lots and lots of. Probabilistic indicators as opposed to a step-by-step deduction. And there are cases where uh, a, uh, a reaction which probably reflects that aggregation, uh, p- largely unconscious of lots and lots and lots of probabilistic cues that we accumulate through our lifetimes, can um, uh, point us in the right direction. But probably uh, even that, it's good to Decide whether it's an instance in which you can trust your intuition, or whether you should think twice and uh, and think deeper.
0: Another listener asks: Are do you have any tips for teaching ba- ba- Bayesian?
1: Bayesian, Bayesian, yes, Bayesian. Thank you. I used to I, I used to think it was Bayesian too until I uh, uh, until I heard someone actually pronounce it. It's named oh, after okay, the Reverend the Reverend Thomas Bayes. Yeah.
0: Okay, Bayesian. Bayesian, yeah. Do you have any tips for teaching Bayesian reasoning more effectively? And this person is asking as someone who is a professor themselves.
1: Yes. Uh, and I, I, um, I actually go into it in the uh, chapter on Bayesian reasoning called uh, Beliefs and Evidence is the title of the chapter, because that's what Bayesian reasoning is all about, just to to step back, take a step back for for the probably majority of listeners who don't know what we're talking about. Uh, Bayes' rule or Bayes' theorem, named after the Reverend Thomas Bayes, is a way of calibrating your degree of belief in a hypothesis based on uh, the evidence. The medical decision-making problem that we talked about a few minutes ago is a classic Bayesian problem. Namely, you've got a base rate in the population, you've got a uh, test or a symptom? Uh, how strongly should you believe that something is true or false? And the, the key insight of the Reverend Bayes is that you could express degree of credence, degree of belief, as a, uh, as a probability between zero and one. And when you do that, some of the mathematics of probability can be uh, brought in. A lot of people don't realize it, but they are already familiar with uh, Bayes' rule if they use the word priors. It's kind of a trendy word, uh, but that's the spillover of uh, Bayesian reasoning into uh, everyday parlance. But now to go back to the question, how do you get people to be better Bayesians? Uh, one way is to, to reframe problems in terms of uh, counts and frequencies instead of probability of a single uh, instance. Uh, You know, uh, there are odds makers who will give you the probability of anything. You know, what's the probability that Mikhail Gorbachev is the Antichrist? You know, one in eight trillion. You know, what does that mean? Uh, And indeed, the probability of a single fact is a, you know, it's it's not such an intuitive concept. Putting it in concrete, visualizable uh, fractions of people helps in Bayesian reasoning. The second one is to do it graphically. And I give an example in the book of a one of Tversky and Kahneman's problems, the, the, the taxi cab problem, where everyone gets it wrong. But if you have the taxi cabs as little blue and green squares, the answer just pops out at you. And finally, another kind of expository pedagogical trick is I think we all are Bayesian, not across the board, not as a formula that we can kind of apply to any content, but for Subject matters that we have to deal with day to day, it can be made uh, intuitive, such as um, if something is common, then if you aren't sure uh, what it is, it's a better bet than if it's rare. As they say to medical students, if you hear uh, hoofbeats outside the window, don't expect to see a zebra. Uh, It could be a zebra, but chances are it's a horse. That's the prior term. Uh, If something, if there's a symptom or result that's kind of common across the board, we all kind of know that you shouldn't take it seriously. So, for example, if someone has, um, you know, lower back pain, and let's say lower back pain is a symptom of, you know, I don't know what, Rocky Mountain spotted fever or something you don't jump to the rare disease just because all kinds of things can give you lower back pain or, 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 sniffles, you know, like that long list of symptoms that the guy speed mumbles at the end of the, the drug commercial, uh, you know, you know dizziness and fatigue and, and aches. It's like, that's a symptom of everything. <laughs> uh, so we kind of have the intuition that if something is a symptom of everything, it's not going to tell you very much about whether that guy has that disease. That's another component of Bayesian reasoning. It's another way to try to tap people's uh, common sense, at least in some domains, to try to generalize it. And I, again, I'm, I'm kind of rabbiting on a bit, but I'll, I'll just throw in one more idea, because the book tries to address the, the question of why, in some ways, people are pretty rational. Even the kooks who believe in in... in QAnon and stop the steal. You know, they, they a lot of them hold a job and they they get the kids clothed and fed and off to school and they keep food in the fridge. I mean, they're they're not like stark raving mad. Uh, we a lot of our rationality is kind of baked it together with certain subject matters or domains. You know, car mechanics or keeping pleasing your friends or or getting the kids to behave. The rationality that's taught in school consists of these across the board, general purpose formulas like Bayes' rule. And that is what's less intuitive. It's not that we're never Bayesian reasoners, it's just that we haven't kind of peeled off this thing called Bayes' rule. And once we have it and we know the, you know, the H's and the D's and the pluses and the minuses, we, we say, ah, new Bayesian problem, new Bayesian problem. I've got that formula, I can apply it. That I think is the biggest difference between Um, kind of formal schooled rationality and the kind of horse sense that that everyone has.
0: So there's another question kind of along this line that I think what you've just spoken about leads into, which is given that this is kind of about practicing and unpeeling and, and thinking actively about it rather than just sort of, as you say, going with your horse sense, do you think that colleges and universities, for example, should require a class in critical thinking? Would that be something that would be helpful in terms of sharpening people's abilities to, to be rational or default to rationality? Um,
1: yes and no. And the reason I hedge, uh, I mean, kind of, yes, it would be a good idea. The One of the reservations is that in practice, courses in critical um, thinking don't really have long-term measurable effects. Um, they don't work that well. Uh, on the other hand, uh Exit polls on just about anything that we teach in university are kind of a depressing site. That is when our students uh, sell their textbooks, the ink is dry in the exam, how much they remember a year later is a pretty depressing site. So anything anything that we teach, including critical thinking, has to be done with good pedagogical practices, such as active learning, such as having students transfer something that they learn from one example to um, diverse, heterogeneous examples so they don't just remember the example and forget the, the principle of the law. They can be effective, and but better than, than critical thinking being one course, it should be kind of woven into everything we do. Um, so it should be part of the ethos of just being an, an educated uh, person. But yeah, I do think, and certainly probability and statistics there, which is a little more circumscribed than critical thinking in general, I tend to think it, it, it should be a requirement. I, I tried to get it as a requirement at Harvard when we revised our general education uh, requirement. I was shot down by the mathematicians.
0: Why? Who,
1: because they wanted it to be a quantitative reasoning re- requirement so people would take also linear algebra and calculus and analysis, all these things that they wanted to teach and not just the, the one professor who teaches stats gets all the students.
0: It sounds like a faculty meeting. (laughs)
1: Yes. (laughs) I'm sure you're all too familiar with it. Yes.
0: So this question is actually one of the questions that I also uh, had for you and didn't have time to ask. So I'm going to blend the two together. So bear with me. So you begin the book with, I think it's called an epigraph, which is a quote from Hamlet. And the quote is this, what is man if his chief good and market of his time be but to sleep and feed a beast no more? Sure, he that made us with such large discourse looking beforehand after gave us not the ability for Godlike reason to fust in us unused. And my question, and I think the listener's question kind of blended together, was do you think our ability to reason and be rational is, as Hamlet believes, in some way due to God? Or do you think that religion is really antithetical to rationality?
1: yeah no I don't think it's due to god, although um poetically or rhetorically, God is often a way to refer to something that is bigger than any of us, so it's uh it, you know, it's a trope so no i don't believe it comes from God I don't think God would have installed all of that uh our conspiratorial thinking and uh, all of the the fallacies and biases that are implanted in us. I think natural selection explains those all all too well compared to divine uh, gift. Uh, Whether religion is, uh, religion would have to be unbundled because lots of things go into religion. When it comes to literal theological beliefs, uh, beliefs in miracles, beliefs in spirits and ghosts and afterlife, Uh, I I think they are irrational in the sense that there aren't reasons to believe it. Uh, When it comes to some of the more uh, altruistic, pro-social, artistic components of religion, the the liturgy, the architecture, the the communal bonds, the commitments to social action, then those components of of, uh, religion can be uh, a a good thing. Uh, But just take a step back on the on the nature of religious belief in general one distinction i make in the book that pertains to religious belief is that a lot of you probably reacted to my last comment that belief in miracle, in in souls afterlife god divine creator uh, to say there's no evidence for it that i might be missing the point that it's a there are kinds of beliefs that people hold where they ordinary uh, criteria for truth and falsity just don't apply. You don't believe them because they're true. You believe them because they're uplifting, empowering, um, entertaining. They seem to have the right moral purpose. And you know, whether true or false is kind of, people think it's kind of pedantic or academic. And I think a lot of religious beliefs fall into that category. I do think they're irrational, but then some people would say applying rationality to them is kind of missing the point. Uh, the problem is, it's not just religious beliefs. And in fact, some of those religious beliefs, when they are believed, don't lead to any good, such as, you know, blow yourself up in a marketplace and you go to paradise. Uh, that is a irrational belief that causes real harm. But there are others... Uh, Do the uh, adherents of QAnon really believe that there's a cabal of Satan worshiping cannibalistic pedophiles in the deep state? Or is it the kind of belief that, well, the Democrats would be capable of it? You know, whether they do it or not, uh, they could do it. That's good enough for me. Uh, So this kind of belief that's neither literally true nor false, but that is empowering or uplifting to believe is, I think, a big category of human belief, and I think a lot of these these, these crazy beliefs kind of fall into that zone.
0: You make, I, I want to get to my final question, but I will say one thing about the whole Pizzagate thing. You make the, the good point that if people truly believe that, perhaps they would take more direct action than leaving a negative review on the Pizza Place website. Um, this is the, the final question, because it's sadly all we have time for, although you should see what the chat looks like. Um, on the topic of moral progress, you say the first domino is a reasoned argument. Um, Even if the person making the reasoned argument is is profoundly flawed. And as an example, you make a really interesting point, which is that Frederick Douglass and then later Martin Luther King Jr., they both quoted Thomas Jefferson extensively in their arguments toward abolition and also for, of course, civil rights and and equal justice. And you, of course, make the point that, that, that Thomas, excuse me, that Thomas Jefferson was a, a very, very flawed individual and also a slaveholder, um, but that the decision to invoke someone like Jefferson does not, you say, does not compromise the rationality of their arguments. It actually reinforces it. And I was wondering if you could explain that.
1: Yeah, because um, uh, ideas have a, um, a life of their own. They're true or false, regardless of who um, uh, utters them, who expresses them. Uh, you know, two plus two equals four. If a good person says it, it's true. If a bad person says it, it's true. And I think that's also true of moral arguments, such as that slavery is uh, indefensible. That may be true even if the person uttering it is a um, slaveholder, as, for example, many of us here uh, might believe that eating meat is um, immoral, even if we're not vegetarians. Uh, we are humans. We're, we're, uh, we're flawed. We're imperfect. We're in some, in a large measure products of our cultural context, our, the society that, that we live in. For, uh, it means that we're not as good as we potentially could be if we conform to the mores of our uh, social clique, but that's who we are. Still, we want to get better. We want to cure disease. We want to eliminate oppression. And we need the right ideas to do it. Often those ideas won't be expressed by angels, paragons. There probably aren't any angels or, or, or paragons. They're going to be fl- humans who are flawed in, in uh, one way or another.
0: Um, we have actually reached the conclusion of the program. So I want to take this time to, first of all, thank you, Dr. Stephen Pinker, for joining us today. It was wonderful to talk to you about your book, Rationality, what it is, why it seems scarce, and why it matters. I want to thank the audience for tuning in. And if you would like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts to make virtual programming available, please visit commonwealthclub.org events. I am Lara Bazelon. Thank you so much for joining us and stay well and healthy.
1: Thanks, Lara, Professor Bazelon, thanks to the Commonwealth Club.
0: You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher.